Hi. I'm Paul. This morning I went running. I went trotting. I don't really run. <laughs> I trot. And I went running around Deerfield because um, thanks to the kindness of the Homer family, we are living in Deerfield this week. And as I was running this morning, I remembered the reasons that I really hated Deerfield and really loved Deerfield. A long, long time ago, I had a part-time job. After school, I had to drive a van full of kids from Northbrook to Libertyville. It was after school. It was very, very heavy traffic. The Edens was a mess. The other one was a mess. It was just terrible. And I would try to find shortcuts through Deerfield. I figured there must be some peaceful residential area, and I could just zoom right through. And if you know Deerfield, they have cleverly sorted it out, so you cannot do that. There are lots of dead ends. But if you go running and you go down one of those dead ends, you'll find maybe a little, a little spot where there's a park, and you go through the park and you get to the next street. And maybe the park has wildflowers or a playground or a forest. Deerfield is great for that. Not a great town to motor through if you're in a hurry, but a really great town to hang out in. And we know that because North Suburban has for years and years been so kind to our family. Did you know we used to live for five years? We lived in the house right there. You as a church, our church was so kind to us. You gave us work here and the opportunity to to grow in the community. And then you were the ones that gave us the opportunity to go to the Czech Republic for the first time for a summer trip, and then the second time for a summer trip. And then you supported us, and you've supported us for 13 years. When things at school get boring and slow, you send us these amazing kids that revitalize the whole place and get all the kids and the staff excited and happy again. And what you really do for us, what's so important, is that you pray for us. There have been so many times in the last year when I didn't feel able to pray for myself. Maybe I forgot. Maybe I was too upset. And you guys were praying for us. So Sharon and Isaac and I and Lucy Rose is here too with her husband Sheldon. We would like to thank you for years, decades of loving us and supporting us. Thank you very much, North Suburban. Now, I just mentioned, oh, you can cap for North Suburban. Yeah, great. I, I just suggested that there were times when I was not able to pray for myself. So I hope that we can trust each other on a few things. First of all, um, it is true that even though I ought to pray all the time without ceasing, I know I ought to, there are times, and this year was definitely full of those times when I just felt like I couldn't. I just I just felt lost. And uh, I hope that you'll bear with me, but some of the illustrations that I plan to use in the sermon today are not going to be, and then everything worked out great kind of illustrations, and then everybody was saved. And um, that, that's actually not what I planned today. But I hope that we can trust each other because um, I, I want to tell you the truth. We've had some times of, of serious weakness. Maybe you've experienced some times of, of loss and weakness recently. I'm going to start reading to you about my favorite Old Testament character. My favorite Old Testament character. So much my favorite that Isaac's middle name is Elisha. Isaac Elisha Till. So would you turn with me to 2 Kings? 2 Kings chapter 4. 
While you're turning there, I just want to say Elisha is my favorite Old Testament character because like some of the other favorites, like David, some of the other ones, I see into some of his weakness. I see into some of his struggles. He had fantastic victories and successes. But there were times when I think he was a little weak, a little insecure. So I like to spend time with him as often as I can. I am in 2 Kings chapter 4. In 2 Kings chapter 4, Elisha uh, made a friend, a woman from Shunem. She's called the Shunammite woman. I wish I knew her name. You know what? Would somebody like to suggest a name for her? We can't go through the story without a name. What should we call her? Mary. Mary. We'll call her Mary. He, he made friends with this Shunammite woman. We're going to call her Mary. And we're going to skip the first part, but there's a beautiful miracle. Through the miraculous power of God, Mary was able to give birth to a child. But then the child died. So now I'm in 2 Kings chapter 4. Verse 17, the woman conceived and bore a son when the appointed time had come of which Elisha had told her, and the child grew. Now it happened one day that he went out to his father, to the reapers, and he said to his father, my head, my head. So he said to a servant, carry him to his mother. When he'd taken him and brought him to his mother, he sat on her knees till noon and then died. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God. Mary had made a special apartment in her, in her house, an apartment set aside for Elisha. So that's why he had a bed upstairs. The bed of the man of God shut the door upon him and went out. Then she called to her husband and said, please send me one of the young men and one of the donkeys that I may run to the man of God and come back. So he said, why are you going to him today? It's neither the new moon nor the Sabbath. And she said, it is well. Then she saddled a donkey and said to her servant, Drive and go forward. Do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. And so she departed and went to the man of God at Mount Carmel. So it was when the man of God saw her afar off that he said to his servant Gehazi, Look, the Shunammite woman. Please run now to meet her and say to her, Is it well with you? Is it well with your husband? Is it well with the child? And she answered, It is well. Now, when she came to the man of God at the hill, she caught him by the feet. But Gehazi came near to push her away. But the man of God said, let her alone, for her soul is in deep distress, and the Lord has hidden it from me, and he has not told me. So she said, did I ask a son of my Lord? Did I not say, do not deceive me? Then he said to Gehazi, get yourself ready. Take my staff in your hand. Be on your way. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. If anyone greets you, do not answer him. But lay my staff on the face of the child. And the mother of the child said, As the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So he arose and followed her. Now Gehazi went on ahead of them and laid the staff on the face of the child, but there was neither voice nor hearing. Therefore he went back to meet him and told him, saying, The child is not awakened. When Elisha came into the house, there was the child lying dead on his bed. He went in, therefore, shut the door behind the two of them, and prayed to the Lord. And he went up, and he lay on the child, and put his mouth on his mouth, 
his eyes on his eyes and his hands on his hands, and he stretched himself out on the child, and the flesh of the child became warm. He returned and walked back and forth in the house and again went up and stretched himself out on him. Then the child sneezed seven times, and the child opened his eyes, and he called Gehazi and said, Call this Shunammite woman. So he called her, and when she came into him, he said, Pick up your son. So she went in, fell at his feet, and bowed to the ground, and she picked up her son and went out. Amen. I'm so, I'm so thankful for the end of the story, but I'm not going to concentrate on the end of the story today. I would like you to try a thought experiment with me. And I, I actually recommend that you do this with a lot of Bible stories that you might have heard many times before. You know the ending. But could you do a thought experiment with me and imagine that you were Elisha at different points of the story and you really didn't know the ending? I'd like us to look at five points in the story, five moments in the story, and just imagine what it might have felt like. The first one, and the one from which we took the sermon name, is when Elisha very candidly says in verse 27 that he doesn't really know what's going on. He understands that the woman is in great distress, but he doesn't really know what's going on. He says, the Lord has hidden it from me. The Lord has not told me. Have you been there recently? I'll bet you have. I'll bet you've been in a place where you love the Lord, you, you trust him, you've prayed, but the Lord has not answered your question. You see the distress, you would like an answer, you'd like an explanation. The Lord hasn't answered your question. He's not told you. Did you know that these great men and women of the Bible, like Elisha, who could raise a person from the dead, did you know that they had that same experience that you and I have, that they had this experience of not really not knowing what God hasn't told me? The second thing I'd like you to notice is I think Isaac, uh, excuse me, Isaac, sorry, Elisha, I think Elisha is a little wrong-footed in his first response. I'm not saying he's sinning. I'm just saying I'm not sure his first response was the best one. 29, he tells Gehazi to go out with the staff and lay the staff on the child. And the only reason I'm saying he's wrong-footed is because it didn't work. And he did something which, which sounds really cool, the staff of the prophet, and that kind of thing sometimes happens in the Old Testament, but it didn't work this time. I wonder how many times that's happened to you. You've heard that your, your brother and sister over here prayed, and they prayed, maybe they fasted, and they prayed, and a beautiful, victorious answer, and you tried the same thing, and it, it didn't seem to work. I, I've certainly had that experience. I also think I also I also think it's really interesting when Elisha gets to the house when Elisha gets to the house he goes upstairs and he lays he lays on the on the child and the body gets warm and then he gets up and he walks around I've, I've tried to imagine myself in Elisha's spot many times. Could, could you try to imagine that with me? You're praying for this child. You lay on the body. You feel it get a little warm, but he's, he's, the job's not done, and you get up and walk around. I'll tell you what's occurred to me, and, and maybe it's occurred to you. I would be racked with doubt. I would be, 
I would be torn apart because I would be thinking, why is the child warm? Are my prayers working or is he just warm because I was, I was on top of him? Was it me or was it God? Was it me or was it God? And I, I would definitely be walking around because I, I wouldn't know. Have you been in that position too? Have you prayed and have you, have you felt like maybe, but I don't really know. And could be, maybe I'm just making this stuff up. Maybe, maybe it's out of my own head. I have definitely been there. I, I would argue that throughout the whole life of Elisha, that's a theme, a theme of, actually, we're, it's not totally clear. It's a little insecure. Do you remember how the whole story started? The, the woman had a, a miraculous child. Elisha said, what should we do for her? What should we do for her? And um, he was talking to Gehazi about whether they could maybe give her a gift or give, her, give them something special. And he didn't know. I thought he was a prophet. I thought he knew everything. I thought he could do like three wishes like a genie out of a bottle. No, that's, that's not it. It's not genie out of the bottle stuff. It's people like you and me who don't know. They're, they're weak. They're insecure. Why does God leave his people in those positions of insecurity and weakness? Why does he leave us in a position where we say, I don't know. He hasn't told me. I'd like to suggest two answers today. They will seem a little contradictory, but you're going to be patient with me. I think as I study this and as I study the New Testament, I think I'm beginning to get a picture of why God puts us in that position. The first reason is I think the Lord loves to let us take initiative. He loves to let us be, be creative and go out into the dark and try something new. I first of all see that all through the life of Elisha. Constantly, I see that as a theme, that Elisha is a man of initiative. Do you remember the beginning of his career? He was apprenticed to a prophet named Elijah, and when he knew that Elijah was about to be taken up to heaven, he said, I want a double portion of your blessing. I want a double portion. What do I need to do? Elijah said, okay, if you keep looking at me and if you see me and if your eyes are still on me when you go up to heaven, then you'll get it. I, that's a fantastic story because it shows that this, this man had a lot, of, a lot of chutzpah to say, I don't just want your power. I want double. And the response played on his ability to keep showing initiative. Okay, you want to do that? Fine, keep your eyes on him. Keep your eyes, keep your eyes up there. Keep your eyes. If you can do that, we'll get it. That's a great start to his career. Another great moment in Elisha's career is when he's confronted by three kings in the wilderness. The kings are lost. They need help from a prophet. One of them is Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, an, a holy and godly man, but the other two, not so much. And when they say, we need some help, we're lost here in the desert, your prophet, get us out of here, Elisha's response is to the, to the pagan king, to the, to the king who wasn't following God, I don't think I even want to talk to you, but because of this godly king Jehoshaphat, and then he said, get me a musician. A 
somebody brings him a musician. He listens to the music, and the Lord speaks to him and helps them. It doesn't, you don't see too many glimpses of that in Scripture. You see some, but glimpses of somebody who's like, I'm really troubled in this situation. This pagan king, this whole situation is a bit much for me. Could we take a break so I can listen to some music? That, that shows me some honesty and some initiative. And when Elisha ministers to people, he often gives them the chance to take some initiative. For example, my favorite guy who's just like me, the guy who loses an axe in the river. If you don't know me very well, I lose stuff all the time. And there's a story about a guy who loses a very valuable metal axe head in the river, and Elisha gets it back for him. But the way Elisha does it is he takes a stick, he throws it in the river, and he lets the man, I'd like to call him Paul because <laughs> Paul loses stuff, he lets Paul reach out his hand and grab the axe head as it floats to the surface. He lets the guy do it. Towards the end of Elisha's life, a king comes to visit, and he tells the king to strike the ground with arrows, hoping that the king knows this is a spiritual moment, it's a supernatural moment, God's power is here, strike the ground. And the king's like, yeah, oh, whatever. And Elisha's so angry because the king doesn't seize the moment and take initiative. God loves it when we take the initiative. He wants us to be like him. He's a creative God. He's a God that does bold, new, exciting things. He values you. He trusts you. And he invites you to take the initiative. So sometimes he hasn't told you exactly what to do because he loves you. And like a child learning to walk, a child learning to talk, he's giving you an opportunity to reach out, maybe make a mistake, fix it, go on, take initiative. And then, sometimes, our initiative is not enough. We're creative, but not creative enough, creative enough to solve all problems. And we have a little bit of strength, but then that strength runs out, and we realize how weak we are. I'm very happy for Elisha and Mary, whose son was returned to her, but there are so many times when our prayers are not answered the way we want. Would you please turn with me to 2 Corinthians? 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. And we're going to hear the testimony of another great man of God. And his name really was Paul. And his prayers, his repeated prayers, were not answered. After repetitive no answers, in verse 9, the Lord gave Paul some insight. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast of my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I mentioned that this past year, there were many times when in weakness, I found myself unable to pray. Let me tell you about one of those times. About a year ago, our daughter Lucy Rose 
married a wonderful young man who's sitting next to her right now. His name is Sheldon. And that wedding took place in Wheaton, and we were so thrilled. We came from the Czech Republic, and my best friend, Mike, who uh, lived out in Connecticut, um, he and his family were invited. But he was suffering from cancer. We, com- we, we communicated a little bit, and he said, you know, I'm going to be at that wedding. I'm going to be there, Paul. He was the best man at my wedding. I was the best man at his wedding. He said, Paul, nothing is going to stop me from being at that wedding. But a few weeks before the wedding, we got a phone call from a friend of ours who's a doctor, and he said, Paul, Sharon, can you get out earlier? Can you come before the wedding? Because we don't think Mike has much time. We spent some time with Mike and his wife, and we spent some very precious days with them, and it was clear he was not going to come out to Chicago for this wedding. We prayed. We laid hands on him. We anointed him with oil. We begged the Lord. We begged the Lord for his healing. I, uh, Sharon and I went on to Wheaton, and, and Lucy Rose and Sheldon got married. What a fantastic honor to be the father of the bride. I, it was just a thrill and a joy. But in my heart, I was thinking about my friend Mike, whose oldest daughter, not too much different in age from my Lucy Rose, his oldest daughter is dating somebody very seriously, and I just said to the Lord, it is absolutely clear to me that my friend Mike has to have that same joy, and his daughter Isabel has to have that same joy of being there, father and daughter, on her wedding day. Lord, you've got to make that happen. It's so clear to me. And in September... He died. So we came out, I came out to the funeral. And I don't understand why the Lord did that. I, I don't understand. Are you in a similar position? Have you just been hit with something? Is there somebody suffering right now in your family? Has, have you just lost somebody? Have you lost something that's precious to you? I, I still don't understand it. I, they asked me to speak at his... At his uh, funeral service, which I did. And then I raced off the stage so that I could spend the rest of the funeral service crying. And the Lord has not yet told me why he did that. He has not yet told me. He has said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And Paul adds, I will boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I've seen another translation, may dwell, live. The power of Christ may rest upon me. Is it possible that the deeper, more important reason why we experience these mysteries is so that the power of Christ will rest upon us, will dwell upon us. Um, My wife, we've been married for just about around 30 years, and uh, we were talking the other day. She was showing some old pictures of me and how cute she thought I was when I was in college. That's really, that's that's really great. It's not true anymore. (laughs) There might have been a time when she found me appealing because of how I looked or how I dressed or my fantastic accomplishments. But all those, those are gone now. But I think, I'm not sure, but I think she still loves me for being me, not the stuff I'm able to do and the way I dress or the way I look. I think we've come to a place in our marriage 
where she, she loves me just for being me. Am I able to love Jesus Christ? Not because of what he, he does when he answers yes, but because of how beautiful he is, because of his character, because of who he is. Let me put it another way. In the Czech school where I, where I teach, I think I can tell you the top three favorite questions. Remember, I, I teach at a Czech high school for non-Christian kids. So when the non-Christian Czech kids ask questions, they love to ask tough questions. Top three, don't you believe homosexuals are going to hell? Would God really forgive Hitler if he prayed to Jesus on his deathbed? And the big one, number one, how can there be a God who loves and has power when there's so much evil in the world? You heard that question a few times before, maybe? How can there be a God who, who is loving and powerful and there's so much evil in the world and he hasn't done anything about it? How could there be such a God? Over the last couple of years, trying to prepare myself for my students, I've been praying on that and praying on that, and I believe God has said, I am not going to give you a clear, logical answer. I'm not going to give it to you. I'm not going to give it to you to share with the Czech students. You're not going to be able to write a formula on the board to teach them. Share this with them. I don't plan on giving you the exact answer. I plan on coming as one of you and being with you. That's what I did when I sent Jesus Christ. You're angry, you're upset about the evil and suffering in the world? I know. My son, Jesus Christ, experienced it personally. He's there with you, experiencing betrayal, loss, suffering, death. He knows it personally. He's experiencing it with you. Two questions. Paul, I'm asking myself, Paul, do you want the power of Christ to dwell in you, to rest on you? Paul, is that what you want? Then you may be about to experience some times of insecurity and weakness when it doesn't feel like he's speaking to you. And now I'll turn it around. Are you experiencing some insecurity, some weakness right now? Do you feel like he's not speaking to you right now? Maybe it's because the power of Christ is about to dwell upon you richly. I understand there's a new tradition at church, which is that you can text the preacher during the sermon, and um, we couldn't get the text thing going. So I'm a teacher. You could put up your hand. And we got a couple minutes if you'd like to ask me a question. Would anybody like to ask a question? Mr. Lapata, and then somebody over there, I didn't see who it was on the left, but go ahead, Mr. Lapata. Uh oh. <laughs> Mr. Lapata, I do have a good answer to that. But you had, to be, you had to be watching very carefully to catch <laughs> No, here's, the way, here's what I was thinking. Uh, when I was preparing the sermon, I found five spots in the story of Mary and Elisha where he was not quite sure. But what I didn't do is make, a, make it totally clear what the five were. Let me, let me tell you what the five were. The first one, I think, is when in verse 13, you want to go back to uh, 1 Kings 4? Oh, sorry, 2 Kings, 2 Kings 4. 
2 Kings 4, verse 13, he says, what can I do for you? He says to the woman, what can I do for you? And he's not really sure what nice thing he could do for Mary. And then the second one in verse 14, when Mary leaves, he says to his servant Gehazi the same thing. What should we do for this gal? Two times in a row, this all-knowing, super-powerful prophet doesn't really know what to do. Remember, I'm not talking about sin. I'm not talking about anything bad. I'm just saying, like Paul Till, he's not sure what to do. And God is not showing him clearly. The other three were a little more obvious. In verse 27, he says, the Lord has hidden it from me. He's not told me. In verse 29, I think he's a little wrong-footed when he sends Gehazi instead of uh, to do the staff thing. And then verse 35, he's praying, he's laying on the kid, and the kid doesn't seem to be reviving. I describe those as five moments when he's not sure, insecure, weak, in the dark. Those are, those are my five. Are you okay with that? Thank you very much. Somebody over here. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, she just asked, how do I answer, answer the question about homosexuality and about God? So... Um, I'm going to slightly cheat, but it's not, it's not totally cheating. The last kid who asked me that said, literally, don't you believe that homosexuals go to hell? And so, actually, that when that kid asked that question, I grabbed the hell piece first and the homosexual piece second. Um, so, and I don't know if this is cheating or this, but I was just going to tell you, this is, this is what happened just a few months ago. Um, I said, could we talk about the hell piece, first of all? Because I, I'd like to talk about... Um, what Christians actually believe about hell. God doesn't want people to go to hell. He sent the Lord Jesus Christ to save everybody from that, every kind of sinner. I'm one, um, I would say greed and pride, selfishness, those are my big ones. They are just as terrible, just as bad. Um, They are the worst kind of sins. I deserve to go to hell, but Jesus has saved me from that, and that's his plan for everybody. Now let's talk about the homosexual piece. I believe God created us, and I believe that he created us male and female, and he created and instituted marriage. This is in the context of a, of a school where I actually get to teach that as part of my curriculum in second year, so they've probably heard me on this topic before. But if they hadn't heard me on the topic, I might take them to some places like the Song of Songs, Genesis, maybe Ephesians 5, and I just talk about God has a plan for man and woman to be married. Um, and now I'm, I'm going to be really honest. This is what I say to kids. If it were up to me, I would probably come up with a different plan, a different rule, because I have a very good friend. We have a very good friend in our family who is a homosexual, and we spend time with him a lot, and we love him very dearly. And I am sad for him because uh, right now he's alone and he doesn't have a partner. But I didn't create the world, and I didn't create men and women. The one who did knows us intimately, and he said, this is the best plan. This is the right plan. This is the healthy plan. And so I stand by that because he's the creator, and he knows us, and he loves us. Thank you very much for asking. How about another one? Uh, Sir.
I heard the second part of your question, but I had a little trouble with the first part. You were asking about the double anointing of Elisha. Could you say the first part of your question, please? Yes. And when you say this section, do you mean the, the chapter that I studied today? Wow, that's a really interesting question. Is there a way to see the double anointing that Elisha had double over Elijah? Uh, before I answer, did you have a thought in mind, sir? Did you have an idea yourself? Uh huh. Uh huh. <laughs> okay, great. Um, um, this gentleman, is, he, he said that he went to a Bible study and he studied something in Hebrew, and I actually think he's probably a couple steps ahead of me on this. Um, I have been told that if we, if we go through all of the different miracles that Elisha did, it appears that there are, in fact, more listed than, than Elijah's, but um, that's, that's an appearance to me, and it sounds like you may have studied it more. Do, do you think that you see the double anointing on Elisha's life in this passage, sir? Yes, yes. Please tell us. Okay. I'm sorry. I, I don't think I have the. I don't think I have the precision that you have, and I'll be. I'll be really honest. I read Elisha as if he was my friend, as if he was my buddy. And so that's, that's the way I relate to him. But I think it would be very good if I could share that same story, or excuse me, that same Bible study and that same Hebrew study that you did. Maybe you'll tell me afterwards so that I could see some of that uh, deeper beauty. Oh, great. Yes. Uh huh. Thank you. That is very interesting. I'm going to be studying that. Thank you very much. I think we could probably do one more. Mr. Lapata. Wow, that's an awesome question. In case you didn't hear, he was talking about Jesus, Jesus who says, I do nothing on my own initiative, but everything, uh, I do everything as my, on my Father's initiative. 
And Joel says he struggles because sometimes he's not sure, is he doing everything, anything, everything on his initiative, his own initiative, or is it really the initiative of the Lord? That's a fantastic question. The first thing I'd like to suggest is that our goal is to be so in step with the Lord that it's like um, the fruit on the vine. We, he is the, uh, we're the branches, but he's the vine, that we have that, that level of unity. So I think you and I would totally agree on that. But as I, especially as I study the, the book of Acts and then the epistles when we find out what the guys are doing, um, I, I don't think they're necessarily going out on their own initiative, but they're taking steps and then sometimes taking a step back and taking a step over here and t- sometimes taking a step back. Sometimes they do exactly what an angel or the Holy Spirit tells them, like Philip who goes and, and races after the chariot, an angel told him to do that. But sometimes... They think, you know, I'd like to go into this city, and then the Holy Spirit stops them. I'd like to go with this partner, and then they don't go with that partner, they go with another partner. So if I look at the whole of the New Testament, there must be a way that I can be the branch attached to the vine, that the fruit comes naturally because I'm in total unity with him. And yet, when he hasn't told me what to do, trusting him I can step forward. I'm reminded of uh, an illustration. A friend of mine gave me this illustration. It's not, it's not with me. Um, you're, ta- you're taking a step. You're not sure if it's your own initiative or not. Think about your hand, and you've got the four fingers, and, and the fifth is the thumb. You want to you grab that, that new thing, and you're not totally sure because no angel has spoken to you, and you haven't heard an audible voice from God. Um, my friend suggested that find out, is this thing, is this new project something that, well, ask your friends, friends who know, know you really well. Get counsel for them. Ask the people who are in authority over you, your parents, your boss, your church elders. Friends on your level, authority, people who are above you. Definitely look at the, the logic, the finances, the information, the intellectual uh, surroundings of that idea. And then a fourth one, still fingers. The fourth finger is, how do you feel? What do you feel in your spirit? And the fifth one, the one that balances, is check this plan of yours, check this initiative of yours with Scripture, this specific written Word of God. Because you may feel great, and your smart brain may have worked out a great plan. Does Does it jive with Scripture? Now, if you're moving out into an initiative without the clear spoken voice of God, but you're trying those those things, the way I would hold a coffee cup with all five, I think you might be learning how to be in step with the Father the way Jesus was always in step with his Father. Thank you very much for asking me such challenging questions. Thank you for your patience, and thank you for supporting me and my family and my school. God bless you.